Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. We're going to start with an email. And uh, this is in reference to an interview, actually our, our last interview, about wisdom. Mm. How, you be- How do we become wise? Right. And in, in short, you become wise by interacting with lots of people from different backgrounds and really listening. And going through a lot of different experiences and learning how to deal with those experiences. And so Stuff like that. And stuff like that. <laughs> Adam writes to us, Hi, SU. One thing I noticed I had to do in order to become wiser is lose my ego and look at myself in the third-person perspective. This improved my ability to regulate emotions, empathize, and self-reflect. For me, this was a conscious process. I was forced to do it because of a life-changing event I found very difficult to deal with. I had to come up with a way to deal with the very strong emotions I was feeling. Once I learned to take myself out of my own body and look at myself in the third person, I could more easily regulate my emotions. But as a sort of side bonus, I also noticed I became better at, or rather I actually started doing, Empathy and self-reflection. So nice, nice tip there. He's Stop and look at yourself from the outside. Describing something, I, I think that the wisdom researchers out there or the wisdom experts out there would call self-transcendence. Mm. When you transcend your own self, I, I don't know exactly what that means. We didn't bring that up with the researcher that we were speaking to from Klagenfurt, Austria, but it's, it's great that you did, Adam. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, that's. I think that's healthy for anyone to at least try. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's jump into the science, Gabe. You've got a, a, a quick one. Yeah, well, public service announcement. Uh, this is a study out of the middle of England, Birmingham, England, Aston College. If you are eating broccoli, which happens, yeah, raw broccoli at a, at a table with other people, don't make a face of disgust. <laughs> yeah. At least if you're a, a woman. The, the study was looking at 200 women. They were eating raw broccoli while watching video clips of other women eating raw broccoli. And there were three facial expressions uh, on the faces of those those video clips of the people in those video clips. One positive, the other disgust, and the other neutral. This is such a weird setup for an experiment. I'm, what, I'm sitting eating a, a anything, really, a, yeah. a cheeseburger, and I have to watch a video of somebody else yeah. eating it and look at it? Anyway. S- social modeling, okay? We yeah. learn what to do and what to like from the people around <laughs> us. And this is just a great example of how, how well social modeling works, at least in, in part. So if you're watching someone eating raw broccoli and they have a face of disgust, you're really not going to like it. Regardless of whether you normally like raw broccoli or not, if you watch someone eating it and is disgusted by the broccoli, who's on a video clip, they're not eating the same broccoli you are. You're just watching their reaction. You will not like the broccoli that you're eating right now. What the researchers were also looking at was what if it's a positive facial expression. So what if you're eating broccoli and you're watching someone eating broccoli and they've got a smile on their face? has no effect. It has no effect. As a matter of fact, it has even also a negative effect. On what? Your bro- we don't like looking at people eating broccoli. Smile while, <laughs> well, while, they're, eating, while, while they're eating broccoli. It's also possible, now that you say that, I, that might be one of those accidentally disturbing video clips. You know those fake smiles? And if somebody's fake smiling while eating broccoli and, so, and you've that, got this I don't want to look at that. Get away That's from not- me. <laughs> Are you even human? I mean, I, I don't know what the takeaway is here. Maybe just don't ever make a face of disgust, even if you find the broccoli disgusting. And, and also don't smile 
when you're eating broccoli. Don't do that either. Be conscious of, of the, the effect of social modeling when you're eating something in the, in the company, in the presence of another person. Just try and keep your facial expressions, I guess, to a minimum. It gives me a weapon uh, to use against my kids when sometimes one will be eating something and the other one looks at him or at her and is like, Ew. Yeah. And you're like, no, A study don't, out of don't. Birmingham, England, you know, tells us. Tells you not to do that. Not, it, it's not. That. It's not dad saying no it's birmingham england especially with regard to raw vegetables i'm left wondering why that study was gendered in the way it was but let's leave it at that because it works for uh, what i'm about to talk about next oh okay great yeah and we finished our last episode asking our listeners to talk about veganism how mm-hmm. do they feel about it mm-hmm. we had one person write in um and he had wonderful things to say about this show saying two random yanks talking science in Deutschland really works somehow. The half hour leaves him wanting more quirky, informative. It's this magic and this mystery. Thank you, you curious strangers, you. Magic and mystery. <laughs> uh, I believe those words are in the, in the Gummy Bears cartoon uh-huh. intro song, the magic and mystery. Anyway, what he says is, I really respect and admire vegans, just maybe not as much as they'd like me to. But seriously, folks, I don't eat much meat, but really like it when I splurge two or three times a month. And that uh, to uh, the sign off was CB. I can't recall who sent this, but um, that makes you oddly like Arnold Schwarzenegger the way you're eating right now. And I'll get to that toward the end here. But this is kind of relevant right now because we're in what apparently is called by some people Veganuary. Mm-hmm. That's what is that a, a social media campaign where people are are trying to get through January, eating vegan, eating a yeah. vegan diet, and then and then like just, just to try it out. Yeah, like dry January with alcohol. Yeah, which I'm kind of doing right now. Um, there you go. Yeah, this is set up by a UK nonprofit. Apparently, four hundred thousand people did this back in 2020. So it's it's kind of significant. And uh, real quick, I know most people are kind of generally aware of this, but it's worth repeating. A lot of benefits. In being vegan, uh, I myself am not. I went kind of vegetarian for a while, and now I'm mixed. But if you're vegan, it's there are 75% less climate heating emissions as a result of your eating behaviors. That's that's gigantic. 75% less, 66% less destruction of wildlife, 50% less water. It's also better for your health. It just all around better for your health. Lower heart disease, lower blood pressure, lower diabetes, lower obesity, and you burn more calories. Even if you do no more exercise because of the kinds of things you're eating, they're not stored as fat. That's but what you were looking into is what people think about vegans, right? Correct, correct. And um, last thing I'll say here, just real quick, is that, yeah. of course, any of you considering this diet or this lifestyle, it, actually, it's really just a diet, talk to your physician because you might end up with vitamin deficiencies. It's calcium, vitamin B, vitamin B12, omega-3, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Talk and make sure you have a good plan for doing this if you do it. And of course, there's the animal welfare issue. Anyway, um, Polish study from the end of 2023 was trying to figure out how do other people feel about vegetarians and vegans? A survey of Poles, what they think about vegans, their image of a vegan. Yes, 1,000 Polish people Uh were were surveyed. And uh, the first part was about your romantic relationship. What would happen if your partner went vegetarian or vegan and there the guys were not that happy with it the guys guys don't really like it their female partner if their female partner were to go vegetarian or vegan 35 percent of men said they would be unhappy so one out of three men in poland would just not like that situation compared to 28 percent of women um 24 of men said it would decrease the quality of the relationship compared to just 15 percent of women 
And this one uh, asked, would it decrease the attractiveness of your partner? 22% of men said yes, it would. 13% of women um, also agreed with that statement. So in general... So this is loaded then. 22% said their their female partner would be less attractive. If they went, if they had one of these diets. And so you can see guys are, at least in Poland... But generally speaking, this is this is kind of true around the world. Guys are less inclined to become vegan than uh, than women are, or, or they hold stronger negative attitudes. Mm-hmm. And around the world, UK, US, Germany, for every one vegan male, there are anywhere from two or three or even four vegan females. Way more women are vegan than men. And that's what this study was really about. It's about the gender stereotypes. And where it got interesting was they got they had these Polish um, focus groups, just 36 people, but they wanted to talk to vegans and vegetarians. Like, how do you, how do you actually experience this? In depth. In, yeah, in depth in the real world. Just a couple quotes real quickly here. Um, one guy who's a vegetarian said, you know, basically everyone's just like, why don't you eat meat? They're critical of him. And they tend to think that he's doing it just to be cool, just to be fashionable because it's like hip or trendy right now. Um, another guy who's a vegan had even stronger association said people who uh, who know you're vegan assume you're, you're aggressive. They've seen these videos of vegans um, occupying places and, and defending their, their diet. Yeah. And there was a woman um, who's a vegetarian. Her response was that she even realized in becoming vegetarian that she held certain stereotypes. For example, that men, uh, she was surprised when a male, uh, the male partner of her dietitian, turned out to have climbed Mount Everest. And she's like, whoa. You know, Despite being vegan. Dis- in, 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 in his case, vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there are a lot of prejudices. Uh, and one of them goes on to talk about how it's linked to masculinity and that it's unmanly not to eat. A lot of ingrained, deeply ingrained prejudices that are keeping guys, unfortunately, from going vegan. I say unfortunately, I'm not trying to promote it. It's just for every new vegan out there, I benefit. I bet the world, the world, the world benefits. I I mean, in that sense, it's a, it's a positive for that person's health. It's a positive for the world. It's a positive for animals. So in that sense, sure, go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of things standing in the way that are stopping guys from doing it, unfortunately. And so at the end of the study, this is kind of the last thing I'll say here. Uh, They're perceived as a minority group, vegetarians and vegans. They're the targets of prejudice and discrimination and that this is a barrier for people to transition. And one of the best things that can happen for men is, and again, I'm referencing men because there aren't enough of them or it's disproportionate, Mm -hmm. is to have a role model to do it. And for me, I remember it vividly. His name was Scott Jurek. He's an ultra runner, happens to be from the area that I grew up in. And he was vegan and winning all these races at a time where that was really unusual. I'm talking like, I think back in the 90s. Mm. Uh, and that was, a, that, that was the first time I realized, holy cow, you can, you can do that. And so I'm just going to list five athletes that people out there might know, not know are vegans. Um, one of them is the tennis player Venus Williams. I had no idea that she was vegan. No. Another one is Novak Djokovic. If I'm saying his name right, I'm not a tennis Champion fan. tennis player. He's yeah. number one in the world. <laughs> Serbian guy. Lewis Hamilton. The number one F1 driver in the world has a vegan lifestyle, vegan diet. Dirk Nowitzki, which Germans are very, very proud of him. Yeah. Um, NBA basketball player, former NBA basketball player. And back to Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has an 80% vegan lifestyle. The guy who embodies gigantic muscles, yeah. 80% vegan. It's well, possible. Patrick Babumian here in Germany, there's a weightlifter who is vegan. 
And that the the hate that he gets online, people saying that he's using steroids, and it just doesn't believe that he can have the muscles and be as strong as he is by eating vegan. Yeah, yeah so he knows all about that. It's possible, and if you. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but if you want to still keep those, you know, quote unquote, masculine ideals and be a big, strong, manly man, you can do it and be vegan. And there are a lot of great examples out there. And that's it. Just real quick, some science on fear. That's scary. Oh, there's a picture of a large spider on a, I believe, a man's that's wrist. The, that's the barn funnel weaver. Do you have arachnophobia? I've got arachnophobia. I've seen the movie, but uh, and it, it actually did scare me yeah. back in the... It's like a movie from the 80s, but I've... No, I don't have. We have spoken about uh, the fear of clowns. Uh, that was in the middle of last year. I forget when. Research out of Germany on phobias. They took people who are afraid of spiders and afraid of heights, right? You have to be afraid of es- both. Established to, to particip- participate in the study. They found 50 people. They looked, It started at 171, got it down to 50. They, they're, they're afraid of spiders and height. I guess that's not the strangest combination. Yeah. It's a very common phobia, now, both of them. The, okay, here's the experiment. They gave them exposure therapy, but only for the fear of spiders. So they treated the fear of spiders uh, by step-by-step forcing these people closer and closer to the spider. And at the end of it, if they could, they would then, you know, have the spider on their hand. Wow, yeah. They did not treat the fear of heights. So they had people walk up a cathedral in Bochum, Germany, and before being treated for the fear of spiders, they tested out how far up they could a cathedral they could get. Oh, yeah, they, you can measure, measure the steps. They walked up the spiral steps yeah. of a cathedral. Very scary, even if, even if you don't have acrophobia, which is fear of heights. Anyways, after having been treated with exposure therapy to the fear of, for the fear of spiders, their fear of heights went down. So they were, they were able to go up 15% more steps after having zero treatment for that fear of heights. Uh, interesting. Yeah. So they, they learned that they were, possibly, that they were able to overcome a fear in general, and hence this other fear may be overcomable. However it happened, it means now that when you treat one fear or one phobia, it might help with other phobias that might lead to universal universal approaches when it comes to fear reduction or fear therapy. Could and it be w- big out of Bochum. Yeah, and it would it would suggest that if you've got a basket of fears, and most people have more than one fear. That's right. Anxiety can... does, is, is normally, there's more than just one of them. Yeah. So treating one can help all the others. That's according to this research, yeah. And we've got one last email on wisdom, right? This was from Kai. What do you got there? Kai sent us a link to Bible verses, to the, to the Holy Bible. Job, right? Job. Book of Job? Book, yeah, Book of Job 28. And in, the, in these 28 um, lines of text, basically, Job is, is using mining, the idea of digging precious metals and, and gemstones out of the earth, mm-hmm. as an analogy for trying to find wisdom. This goes back to that wisdom study. And he basically concludes that... You can find things like, you know, gold and crystal and topaz and silver and coral and... Wait, topaz? Onyx and (laughs) lapis lazuli in the ground. But you can't find wisdom. You can't find it. You can't dig it up. The only way to get it, he says, is through God. And this is going to connect to uh, the next interview that we're about to do here. But Gabe, why don't you read those verses? Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. What? And to shun (laughs) evil is understanding. 
I hadn't read. I don't know, or I'd read that part too quick. That that's what that's what Job claims is wisdom: fearing, fearing God. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah, we well, we're gonna look into religion and what kids think about God when it tells something to them in a little bit. Yeah, that's that's what we're about to do here. Uh, it, before we do, it's important to just say that Job's wrong. We could it's have asked. We, we could have asked her about you know whether the fear of the Lord is the way to a, a, attain wisdom. That would have been interesting to hear her response. Yeah. So that's up next. And if any of you, in the meantime, have anything to say on veganuary or being vegetarian or vegan or how to eat broccoli mm. or other things in front of other people, please get in touch. We are su at dw.com. Imagine you've got a, a four-year-old or a, or a six-year-old or a seven-year-old standing in front of you. Or, or an eight-year-old. I've, or I've an eight-year-old got, or a nine-year-old. Okay. Yeah. And you ask that kid if it's okay or yeah, if he or she thinks it's okay to stomp on another kid's foot. It's, a, it's you, a good question already, yeah. right? Is that okay? And then you say, what if God said that the the opposite is is right. So if the, if the kid says it's it's not okay to stomp on another kid's foot, and then you say God no, says it's yeah, okay. God, God says you should do God it. God says it's, it's okay. It's a really good thing to do. Stomp on a foot, smash it. What does the kid think then? That's the that's the entire premise of a really fascinating study, and we're gonna go to Madeline Reinicki to talk about that study right now. Science unscripted. Okay, sure. So. My name is Madeline Reinecke. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford. And together with my collaborator, Larissa Heifetz-Solomon, we recently published a paper in Cognitive Development looking at what children think about whether morality could be made different by God. And what do children think? Or what was, what was the primary conclusion of your research? So... The primary conclusion is that in both ages of kids we tested, so that was four to six-year-olds and seven to nine-year-olds, we see that they tend to think that morality couldn't be changed by God, that widely shared aspects of morality, they think that those things have to be the way that they are, that they couldn't be changed even by an omnipotent entity. And how did you find that out? What did you ask these kids? So what we did is we asked about three different kinds of questions, first about widely shared aspects of morality. So things like stomping on another kid's foot really, really hard, that that's immoral. That's something that most people would agree on. We also asked about controversial aspects of morality. So things like stealing food to feed another hungry child or telling a white lie to make someone else feel better. And then we also asked about non-moral states. So physical facts about the world, things like germs being smaller than houses or fire being hotter than snow. And what we found was when we asked kids, first off, what their beliefs were. So we would say, for example, here are two kids. One kid thinks this and the other kid thinks the opposite. Which kid do you agree with? We would get their certainty on that judgment. And then we would ask, well, what if God made it otherwise? What if God made it morally right, for example, to stomp on another kid's foot? 
really and what, hard. What happened then when when you told them that that God God changed the the, the rules on this? What, how did they respond? Well, what we see is that kids tend to deny that God could change the rule. That they say God couldn't make it morally right to stomp on another kid's foot really hard, and that confidence that they had in those judgments was consistent in the four-year-olds all the way up to the nine-year-olds. But they, so they really had to confront the idea, or yeah, it's an idea in this case of of a God saying you should stomp on another kid's foot and hurt them. They had they had to consider whether that was something they could possibly believe in. Whatever they indicated as being their belief, of course, most kids that we asked did say that it was, they agreed with the child who said that it was immoral to stomp on another kid's foot. We asked them the opposite of whatever they indicated. So if they said, you know, on the off chance that they said, I think it's okay to stomp on another kid's foot really hard. Well, then we would ask them, could God make it not okay to stomp on another kid's foot really hard? So they had to confront what the possibility of whatever, whatever's the opposite of what they just... The opposite of what they believe. If you had two groups here, four to six-year-olds, seven to nine-year-olds, um, any, any differences there? I'm not sure what I would expect the difference to be, but uh, were they different? Yeah, so it wasn't the case that we didn't see any age effects across the board. We did see the older children become increasingly confident that God could change physical facts about the world that God could make germs larger than houses or fire colder than snow. But we didn't see that kind of developmental shift for widely shared aspects of morality. The older kids also were more likely to say that God could change controversial aspects of morality. But by and large, they thought that morality was generally unchangeable, but their strongest beliefs were that God couldn't change widely shared aspects of morality. How many kids are we talking about here? Uh, 129 which might not sound like a lot, but this is what's called the within subjects design. So we asked every kid about every kind of of option. So that gives us some granularity into their thinking. How are they comparing between, say, the physical kinds of facts and and what seem to be like moral facts? Did you get any information on on the kids' relationship to God or how they were brought up with regard to religion? That's something I would really love to look at with more granularity in the future. What we do have a little bit of insight into is parent religiosity. So for about half the sample, we have at least one parent religious demographic. Um, And what we see from that information when we put that into our statistical models is it doesn't change the findings that I'm talking about here. So it wasn't the case that, that these findings are driven by religious children or non-religious children. So you're saying that, that kids can't learn th- th- these kinds of things? It's, 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 it's just in us? Is, is that the way that we have to understand this? I would think of it as kind of like a, a scaffold, that we have this, we're not blank slates, that there's some kind of moral scaffolding that maybe we come into the world with, and then off of that scaffolding we get our society-specific, our religious-specific uh, beliefs that kind of build on those early emerging, if not innate, moral foundations. Is it fair to say, based on your study and others like it, that children don't need religion at all? They don't need to believe in a God or have, have religious ideals pushed upon them to have a deep inner moral compass, that they have that anyway, that they're, that they're actually born with that compass? They're born with at least some kind, or at least they they seem to be born with some kind of 
moral inclination. And of course, we see that that morality is is not always cut and dry, and uh, we often disagree about certain aspects of morality. But at least early on in development, we see something like an early emerging moral signature that's not something that needs to be taught or learned or even come from engaging with others. It's something that that seems relatively hardwired and, and predisposed. Can kids understand what God is? Or did you did you get a sense from your study in dealing with these kids that they could even understand what that means when you said, well, God says it's right? How did they re- how did they react to that? Yeah, so to be fair, there were some parents who were like they, and m- many of these interviews were done over Zoom because this was during the beginnings of the pandemic. Sometimes parents would pop in and be like, "My my kid doesn't know, doesn't know what what God is or anything." But even setting that aside, there's a really fantastic literature that suggests that kids develop these concepts very early that maybe kind of like we come in predisposed with a moral sense, so too do we come in predisposed with an ability to think about supernatural agents. Um, so even three-year-olds, this isn't my work, but there's there's evidence that even three-year-olds can distinguish God when asked about questions about God, that they can distinguish God from other kinds of agents and that they'll tend to ascribe greater supernatural capacities that God uh, would be able to accomplish these things that humans typically can't. If my understanding of morality is that it comes from God, does your study destroy that? I don't think so. I don't think, I I would say our, our work is entirely descriptive. It's about what people think about morality. We can't actually say whether morality comes from God or whether it doesn't. But what this does suggest is that people's beliefs about whether morality could be different and whether it could be changed or altered by God, that those beliefs are early emerging and and potentially persistent throughout human development all the way through adulthood. That was a great and nuanced answer. I'm just trying to make sure that I understand it because I would have, I would have thought that what Gabe said is what your, is what your research shows if I'm honest, because if, if you have children who reject the idea at a very young age that God can really inform them at all about what they should or shouldn't be doing in the real world, especially when it comes to hurting other people. And intuitively. Yeah, they don't even have to think twice about it. No, of course that's wrong. Even if God tells me to stomp on a kid's foot, no way. Mm -hmm. Then that would suggest that you don't need religion for children to be moral little creatures. Well, the relationship between religion and morality is an interesting one. There's, There's a very fascinating literature about whether religious folks are more ethical than non-religious folks. And the way that I understand that literature is that the answer is typically no, there isn't a difference between religious and non-religious folks in terms of of pro-social behavior. We can't exactly know from this work whether or not what kids are saying is the truth, but we do get some insight into their developmental moral cognition and what they're thinking about morality. And we see that as robust over time, but whether or not we get it right, that's sort of a separate question. And that was Madeline Reinecke talking to us there from Oxford, from her new apartment. Just moved into a new apartment. Yeah. And she's working there with the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. If you're interested in going to the actual study itself, 
It is entitled Children Deny That God Could Change Morality, and it was published in Cognitive Development. I have a four-year-old at home, but I don't, I don't really know her assessment of, of moral laws. <laughs> her assessment of moral <laughs> laws? So you'd ask her at the dinner table? Well, I've, well, I've never told her that God says that um, oh, yeah. says the opposite of what she believes when it comes to um, moral axioms. I would love for you to ask her. See, see tonight. What, tonight. I'll get back. Yeah. I'll get back to see what she says on whether or not she should stomp another kid's foot. That'll actually be funny to hear her answer on that one. I, I bet she's done that. Well, if God she's, told her to. Yeah, she's rough. So then she would have to hear that, that God says it's okay. Because I'm sure that she stomped on another kid's foot. She stomps on my foot. She stomps oh, on so her she dog's think, foot. So she thinks it's okay, regardless of whether or not God has said that you should do that. Yeah. She just, it's okay. It's okay yeah, to do She it. hasn't learned empathy yet. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a wrap for today, I guess. Um, if you have any other thoughts on what is a, a, a topic, I don't know, that is, is this the biggest one? One of the biggest ones? I don't know if it gets much bigger than talking about what causes human beings to be good or evil. Yeah, where does morality come from? That's what this is all about. Email us, su at dw.com, leave a comment, and we'll get back to you. DW. Made for Minds.